So you've written a very powerful, I think, and damning indictment of the Obama administration and perhaps even Barack Obama himself with regards to this poor fellow, this poor who was a child, this young man who was a child when he was first captured and who spent, I think, eight years in Guantanamo Bay and has recently pled guilty to a murder charge, which under the rules of the Geneva Convention and generally civilized warfare would be completely incomprehensible given that he was fighting against an army that had invaded in his country. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the background of this affair and, and how it came about that this uh, astonishing travesty of injustice has occurred. Well, let's, we have to go back to 2002 uh, or even 2001. After 9-11, uh, in less than a month, the U.S. began an invasion of Afghanistan, as you may recall, uh, to go after the Taliban. And they, they initiated, uh, the Bush-Cheney administration initiated what they call the War on Terror. So they, uh, they overthrew the Taliban government of Afghanistan in the course of pursuing a gang of terrorists who were uh, in the country uh, as theoretically as guests of the Taliban. And um, that war morphed into, uh, after the al-Qaeda basically fled from Afghanistan across the border into Pakistan and to points unknown, uh, it morphed into a war against the Taliban who regrouped and have been fighting back against the U.S., which has been escalating its troops until it's a full-scale war now. At the beginning, it was maybe ten or 20,000 troops. Now it's 150,000 plus an unknown number of mercenary uh, soldiers that we have there as private contractors. Um, this kid, uh, Omar Khadr, is actually a Canadian citizen born in Canada, uh, whose father was a uh, confidant of uh, um, the leadership of al-Qaeda, uh, including Osama bin Laden, apparently. Uh, he subsequently was killed in uh, Afghanistan by U.S. bombing. But uh, the son was kind of drafted into al-Qaeda by the father. He was, uh, at the age of, I believe, 14, sent to become a fighter with the uh, forces opposed to the United States in Afghanistan. And in 2002, he happened to be in a uh, housing compound that uh, U.S. Special Forces came on. Uh, they looked through the door, saw some guys with Kalashnikovs, and called in an airstrike on the compound, bombed the hell out of it, and then went in to uh, pick up the pieces uh, they found the badly wounded uh, Cotter, who was at the time 15 years old, as well as another uh, guy who was also badly wounded uh, and was shot by them. Uh, so Cotter had a hand grenade, supposedly, according to the charges, although there's some question in terms of no real eyewitness to this. The military claims that he threw the hand grenade at the advancing U.S. Special Forces and killed a Sergeant Spear, Christopher Spear, and blinded in one eye one of the other American soldiers. Uh, he was critically wounded. He was arrested. He was brought to Bagram, the prison, you notorious prison, where they uh, have all these Taliban guys locked up and tortured. 
And he was tortured, apparently, even even by military testimony. He was seen hanging by a chain by his wrists, despite his wounds. He was threatened with rape repeatedly by American interrogators and and uh, by his prison captor, prison guard captors. Uh, he was subjected to uh, cold and heat and darkness and unremitting light uh, to. Um, I believe some of the other things were uh, that he was uh, had his wounds manipulated to cause pain, all kinds of really nasty stuff. Um, and uh, and then he was shipped to Guantanamo, where he has been. He really grew up there from the age of 15 to now he's a 24 year old man. Um, and all this time he's maintained his innocence, except at the time he was being tortured in Bagram when, when they claim he confessed, but that was under torture. <laughs> right. So, you know, so we've reached this point where now uh, he was the first person, he ended up being the first person to be put uh, to a military tribunal under the supposedly new and fairer uh, standards that were established by Congress and President Obama uh, after they realized that the and after the courts told them that the Bush tribunals would not fly. Um, and the the thing people need to know uh, in the international community is that military tribunals uh, are, first of all, not a jury of your peers, but are a jury of um, ranking officers in the military. And second of all, that tribunals allow the admission of testimony, uh, hearsay evidence and testimony obtained under torture both of which are completely disallowed in a uh, in a courtroom in the United States under the uh, you know under our system of justice, and right. so so here he had uh, Cotter uh, who was facing a military tribunal under those circumstances where his confession was going to be allowed even though it was elicited under torture and uh, testimony, hearsay evidence against him by other people who had been subjected to torture was going to be allowed. Uh, and he was going to be uh, have his case adjudicated by a jury of seven military officers. And his potential penalty in this uh, case was life in prison. So at the last minute, his lawyer, uh, who has all along said this is a, a sham and a, a kangaroo court and a travesty because he was 15 when he was arrested, uh, recommended to him a uh, uh, alternative, which would be a plea bargain that would get him out of Guantanamo after, I think, seven more months, uh, where he would be shipped to Canada and spend seven more years in jail uh, in Canada in a you know regular prison. That's a pretty nasty choice, but... Uh, one can see why he would have pleaded guilty. The government's now trumpeting this guilty plea as evidence that they were right all along. But, uh, yeah. you know, if any... I mean, that's, it, so, that's so Soviet. I mean, that is like straight out of the Gulag archipelago. Yeah, that that say, we have a confession, therefore we were right. Yeah, and one might say it's right out of, uh, out of uh, the playbook of uh, Saddam Hussein, too, you right. know, who we overthrew because of this kind of garbage. Uh, it, it really is an atrocity. And, and what... I, what I think gets ignored by people is the fact that this is being done by a president who ran for office saying that uh, he was a constitutional scholar, 
had taught constitutional law and that uh, Guantanamo was an outrage which needed to be stopped and that it, w it was destroying America's image abroad. Well, <laughs> um, he's the commander in chief. He oversees these military tribunals. He's the ultimate judge on these tribunals, and he has allowed this to go on. Right. Now, there, if I understand your article correctly, there are three general layers of just cluster-fracking injustice that's going on with this kid. The first, of course, is that he was a child. And uh, under the laws of war, special treatment are to be accorded to children, especially children who are conscripted into a war about which they would know very little and, and would understand very little. It wasn't like this guy had CNN on all the time since he was five. So uh, he's young. Uh, he's conscripted, and that's the first level. The second level, of course, as you mentioned, is the, uh, the hearsay evidence and the uh, admission of evidence under torture. But the third, which seems to me quite odd, is it seems very strange to say that it's a jury of your peers or it's a, some sort of impartial judge when it is composed of officers of the army that's fighting your people. That doesn't seem to me to be very impartial. A sort of Geneva court, a third-party court might be more objective. But those are sort of the three major layers. Is, is that fairly correct? Is there something that I'm missing? Uh, yeah, there, there are even more complexities. Um, but let me go back to the three that you've mentioned, and then I'll tell you some other ones that, that right. think about this. First of all, the, the, um, the convention regarding the rights of the child, are, um, which the U.S. signed and is bound by law to, uh, under our Constitution, uh, it becomes a part of our criminal justice uh, law. Um, children under the age of 18 we are required to consider, uh, even if they're caught or captured fighting against us, they're to be considered victims, not combatants. That's the rule. So, uh, so he should have immediately been treated as a victim of war, not as a combatant. As a civilian, in other words, who was caught up in the fighting. Yeah. I mean, right. in other words, a, a child does, is not uh, considered to have the, uh, the ability to uh, understand the circumstances of the war that they're fighting in. They're put there under enormous duress and misinformation by people who want them to do the fighting. In this case, his own father. Um, right. You know, if anything, it was child abuse for his father to put him in that situation at 14 years old. It's ridiculous. Um, and the man was obviously a twisted nutcase. But, uh, but be that as it may, when these guys captured the kid, they should have immediately put him in therapy, you know? right, and, right? And instead, they tortured him. So, um, and, and they were interrogating him while he was coming out from uh, being operated on for multiple wounds. You know, uh, while he was on drugs from from being uh, operated on. And these guys are sick, and then. Uh, you know, so that's the first violation, and that's a war crime. You know, it, it, and I, I don't want to. You know, you can't put too fine a point on that. When you violate the Geneva Conventions, you're committing a war crime, and a war crime is supposed to be prosecuted and punished. And it's the duty of higher officers to see that that is done. And the highest officer is the commander in chief. It wasn't done. You know, George Bush was the commander in chief at the time, but Obama's the commander in chief now. The minute he took office, he should have had this kid released. Uh, and by the way, he's not the only child who was at Guantanamo. There were um, children as young as 11 or 12, and they actually had there are several camps at Guantanamo for different classes of prisoner, and they had one called Camp Iguana that was just for children. 
So Camp Iguana. I mean, that, that sounds like a, a macabre parody, uh, you know, of a summer camp. Uh, but uh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, but I, I mean, these are things Americans don't know because our media don't write about them. But uh, but Camp Iguana was the children's camp at, at Guantanamo. It's really sick. Um, and uh, so at any rate, um, that that's your, that's the, the major problem with this case is we're dealing with a child who never should have been arrested in the first place. Second of all, um, a lot of the problem is that the U.S. has been since – 9-11, uh, maintaining this weird uh, semantic argument that uh, the people we're fighting are not soldiers and therefore uh, are not entitled to the protections of the Geneva Convention. And they use as an argument, I, this is incredible, they're saying, you know, they're not regular soldiers, they don't wear uniforms. Well, neither do U.S. soldiers. You know, our special forces go in and they go native. They put on, you know, the costumes of the people in the region and try to hide out when they do raids. You know, we always see the pictures of them in their uniforms, but that's not what they always do. And um, there have been plenty of pictures of them in native costume in Iraq and in Afghanistan. So uh, that's baloney. And not only that, but they, in the case of Cotter, they actually dropped that uh, argument um, because they realized they were going to get caught up with the problem that the uh, that the CIA guys that are running the uh, predator uh, drones and killing people in Afghanistan and Pakistan also don't wear uniforms, and their weapon is the predator drone, but they're the soldiers doing the killing. So uh, they too uh, are, are irregular by the U.S. definition. Well, and of course, it's uh, ironic and tragic to, to realize that when the U.S. was in a situation a couple of hundred years ago fighting against a superior and uniformed British force, they took to the woods. They were the insurgents. They fought uh, out, of, out of uniform. And they were heroes, of course, fighting for the freedom of their country. But of course, when other people do it, they're insurgents and terrorists. And it's, it's so predictable, but, but it's still something worth noting. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. And and uh, likewise, you know, in, in World War II, we had uh, American soldiers who were uh, go, working with French resistance, for example, in uh, civilian uniforms and stuff. All these things are are um, are silly when you know that you're you're just a, a fighter is a fighter, and uh, they all should be entitled to the same protections, or we're just uh, completely uh, in the law of the jungle. Um, the uh, the other thing is that you know what they're trying to do is create this class of uh, terrorist who's not really a soldier at all, you know. And arguably, you could make the case that the that the Al Qaeda guys are a gang, a criminal gang, you know, and and that they would not be entitled to uh, to the protections of POW status. I can see that case being made legally with some kind of. Uh, um, moral basis, but uh, that's not what the Taliban are, and uh, and it's also not right to say that guys like Khadr, assuming he were an adult, uh, if he's fighting with the Taliban, which is what was happening, he's no longer a terrorist. He's simply an ally in country. I mean, he's he's a Canadian. He's not an Afghani, but he uh, is. An ally, as if you were an adult, he's an ally of the Taliban and is fighting with them. We have those people all the time, you know. I mean, uh, 
there are um, in in the United States is fighting in Afghanistan uh, on behalf of the Afghan government, at least theoretically. That's what the, our government claims. Never mind that that government's a puppet. The same thing was true in Iraq. You know, after we supposedly handed over sovereignty in 2004, uh, the the army that was fighting the insurgents in Iraq was the Iraqi army, and our army was there by invitation. We then become uh, foreigners fighting for Iraq. Huh. And, right. and what and and in that same sense, Cotter, as an, were he an adult, would be a soldier from another country fighting. The French Foreign Legion does this, you know. I mean, the, well, the Coalition of the Willing would be the same category, right? Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. so to argue that he is somehow a terrorist, while the people he's fighting with are uh, maybe soldiers um, and entitled to POW status, is really too fine a distinction. Right, right. And I think you, you've made the case elsewhere, if I remember rightly, that the whole mess is a war crime. I mean, as far as I understand it, I mean, the U.S. did not make the case that uh, bin Laden was behind 9-11. I mean, I know a lot of people believe it, but, and it may be true, but they didn't make the case. They just invaded the country without proof. They didn't ask for extradition. They didn't ask for the al-Qaeda operatives to be handed over. Actually, which it's, means worse, that you know, it's worse than that, because what happened was the, the story of, of uh, the U.S. and uh, the Taliban and Osama bin Laden is that uh, uh, before the U.S. actually attacked Afghanistan, the Taliban government offered to turn bin Laden over as long as the U.S. would guarantee that he would get a fair trial. Right. And the U.S. wouldn't guarantee that. Bush, Bush told them that he wasn't interested. Uh, after we invaded, they said they would hand him over anyway. And Bush said he wasn't interested. So all of this nonsense about pursuing bin Laden uh, with our invasion of Afghanistan is a complete crock because the Taliban was ready to sell him out and give him to us to avoid being invaded. Yeah, and it just reminds me of the end of the Second World War when the uh, Japanese government, uh, uh, when the American government said that the condition of surrender was the removal of the emperor. The Japanese government agreed to that, and then they nuked them anyway. It's, it's, uh, the, the, America has a pretty puritanical and savage streak. Not to say it's the only country that does, but it's something, American exceptionalism is often put forward to, to hold up the position that there's a moral difference between America's shining city on the hill and the rest of countries. But when they're in a bloodthirsty mood or when America's in a bloodthirsty mood, uh, it, it seems to act the same as any other imperialistic power, which is to puff itself up morally while performing the worst kinds of atrocities under the table. That's, that's absolutely right. And your account of the end of World War II is absolutely right. Before we dropped either bomb, uh, the Japanese were already suing for peace. They had talked to the Swiss embassy, they'd talked to the Russians, and the Americans knew about it and wanted to drop the bomb. Both bombs. <laughs> And now, I, I want to respect your time, but I was wondering if you could just spend a few minutes talking about why you think this is occurring. Is, is the bloodlust for this deluded perspective of vengeance still so strong in the U.S. almost a decade after the attacks uh, that this is considered to be a just punishment? Is there so little empathy for a child caught up 
in this global conflict of which he knew virtually nothing. Uh, why do you think this is being allowed to continue? Why is the president not intervening or any other senior members of the military? Well, let me tell you a little bit about uh, America. Your accent makes it clear you're not an American. Indeed. This is a country, this is a country that loves to take kids who commit crimes, little kids, six-year-old kids, and uh, based on what the crime is, usually when it's murder, uh, we like to have them declared uh, adults for purposes of trial. So we've got kids. Uh, there was just a case recently uh, of a kid who was, uh, I forget how old he was, but it was a single digit, uh, who was uh, tried as an adult in Florida and given a life sentence for uh, the, the uh, killing of a, another kid, which uh, by all accounts, could have been an accident, you know. But in any case, you know, how do you how do you try a like a nine year old kid as an adult? Uh, it right. it just it, it just makes a mockery of any concept of justice whatsoever. Right. Um, and and that's not uncommon. I mean, in my own state of Pennsylvania, it was done to a uh, um, kid who was I think twelve years old who shot uh, an older brother with a rifle because he was angry at him and was tried as an adult. And, and he's now, uh, I think facing life. Wow. So given that that's what we do in this country, uh, I mean, there was for your own kids, let alone foreigners, uh, let alone people you're at war with. This is just kids down the street. Yeah, no, there was a 15 year old girl in Ohio. I met the, uh, the victim's, uh, grandson, uh, this 15 year old girl, uh, brutally murdered a uh, uh, a grandmother, an older woman, who uh, she had said something to her that she found offensive, you know, and the girl obviously had man anger management issues. But it turned out that she was, uh, you know, had spent her life since infancy being sexually abused by the men in her mother's life and uh, was, you know, truly damaged goods. Uh, she was sentenced, tried as an adult at 15 and sentenced to death. Uh, oh. I, I'm sorry, it's Indiana. And, oh. um, you know, the, the only reason she's not dead now, she got close to execution, but the son, uh, the grandson of the woman who was murdered uh, decided uh, sort of midway through her incarceration and, and uh, time on death row that his grandmother would have been disgusted. Uh, at the idea of her being executed. And so he started going to see her and realized her humanity. He paid to have, he personally paid to have her get therapy. And mm. he uh, mounted a campaign that reached the Pope uh, to huh. get the governor to, uh, to uh, commute the girl's sentence. And I believe it was this year that she was finally released on good behavior and is now devoting her life to going around with this guy talking against the death penalty. But, you know, this is another case of the mentality in America of how we look at kids who commit crimes. So given all of this, I don't see a lot of interest in America in, you know, empathy in America for the fate of a 15-year-old boy who kills an American soldier in even though it's in battle. And even though what he did, uh, if an American young guy had done it, w it would have been a silver star. You know, exactly. I mean, and and of course, guys uh, come at you when you're already badly wounded 
and you throw a grenade knowing that you're and that probably the next thing that's going to happen is a bullet to the head uh, is an amazingly heroic act, actually. Uh, e even if we assume that it happened, which I would be very, very skeptical about. I mean, reports from the military with self-interest on the battlefield with no witnesses and no objective facts. I just assume it's a it's a fairy tale. I mean, yeah, I imagine otherwise. it's made up, and he says it never happened. But uh, until until he made this plea bargain, so right. uh, there there is no corroborating witness to the statement of these military guys who had it in for this kid. So, and by and the way, uh, yeah, you know, the other thing is that there's plenty of testimony that U.S. soldiers are are uh, double clicking. They call it, they even have a term for it, the soldiers, double-clicking uh, wounded fighters when they walk into a scene. So, you know, this kid had every reason to think these, and probably truly what they were doing, that these soldiers were walking into the compound and just popping off every guy they came on that was wounded by the bombing. So, Yeah, know, a Canadian soldier just got charged, with, I think just got convicted of that as well. So that, that is very commonplace, I think, over there. Yeah, so so you know nobody's watching, and uh, and so uh, you know throwing a grenade is also uh, it would be an act of self defense, desperate self defense. And for a president who was so focused on improving the image of America around the world, I can't imagine. I guess I can imagine the hate that is being made by Muslim media or Islamic media with regards to this incredibly tragic and abusive situation. I mean, the image of America overseas when they're focusing on the sympathies, uh, the sympathies are naturally, and I think humanely, directed towards this kid. I mean, they must just be making an enormous amount of statements overseas uh, in foreign press. Well, especially in the, in the Muslim world, I mean, this is really outrageous uh, and and does huge damage not only to America's image, but it probably will contribute to more guys and more American guys dying uh, overseas because of the passions that'll be inflamed here. Uh, the one thing that I'm I'm puzzled at is I, I maybe mistakenly had this notion of Canada as being somehow huh. saner and more humane than its neighbor to the south, and yet. Uh, Canadians have not rallied behind this kid, uh, perhaps because of the same kind of, uh, of uh, prejudice against Muslims. I don't know. I, I mean, I think that's, that is a perspective that, that Canada has around the world. Uh, I think that you may want to ask Native Canadians how, uh, how they feel about the benevolence of the Canadian government uh, or Canadian schoolchildren uh, who are facing some just atrocious schooling up here. Uh, you know, in my mind, uh, the, the system as a whole is, is pretty messed up and needs to be examined from the ground up. Uh, I don't think that there's a, uh, I personally don't think there's a good government around the world. I think we need to look at alternatives to uh, violent oligarchical hierarchies in terms of trying to solve complex social problems. But uh, I, I think that there is a perception of that because uh, we tend not to have as aggressive a foreign policy. Uh, as the United States does. So from the outside, it looks much more peaceful, but from the inside, there are many similarities. And I think this, this, what the Canadian government is doing, or rather not doing, and what the Canadian public is not doing is pretty telling. There is, of course, a lot of social pressure to hate the enemy. I mean, Canada, of course, uh, has merely advisors in Iraq, but is fully committed to Afghanistan. And of course, soldiers are dying over there. And there is this weird social standard that says, showing any compassion or humanity for the, quote, enemy is a betrayal of the people who are in uniform. Uh, and I think that's just completely mad. What we're trying to do, I think, the people who are working for peace in the world, we're trying to avoid the cycle. And the cycle can only be broken through compassion. What we're doing right now with this atrocity, of course, as you know, is we're building 
the next wave of violence that is going to come in from the Muslim world, to which everybody will then throw up their hands and say, it's incomprehensible. Why would they hate us? It must be because we're so good, which only adds, uh, only adds gasoline to the fire. So sorry for my rant. This is supposed to be your interview, but uh, that's <laughs> no, my but you're, you're absolutely right. Of course, um, who's, who's killed more Canadian soldiers, the Taliban or American soldiers? I don't have those statistics off the top of my head, but I'm sure if it's not even, America's slightly ahead. And we killed a bunch of your guys, didn't we? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, and, and some in training exercise just bombed. Yeah, yeah, no, right. Some, there was some outrageous uh, error that uh, I remember where the U.S. killed a whole bunch of Canadian guys. Um, why do we hate you? <laughs> I don't know. Right, right. <laughs> Uh, anyway, listen, I really do appreciate it. I'm going to post a link to the article. Uh, I really wanted to to highlight it because there is, you know, this sort of syrupy, gooey, good press about uh, Obama's uh, pacifism and nobility and so on. Uh, but he, to me, just seems like a very well-groomed Roman general. There is blood at the base of the pedestal that nobody wants to look down and see. And I thought that your article really uh, brought that into focus. And I really thank you for taking the time to to write it. And thank you to, uh, for taking the time to, to chat with this show. Thanks for having me on. And, and please uh, let me tell people that the uh, site is thiscantbehappening.net. I will link to that as well. And uh, uh, I would also, if at some point you'd like to come back on and talk more about children's rights in the U.S., uh, that is something that I'm very, very interested in. Uh, so please let me know if you have any more time after all of your massive deadlines have passed. Anytime. Thanks, man. All the best. Bye-bye.